Hello, my name is Jennifer Murphy. I'm one of the core surgical trainees at Queen's Medical Centre. And I'm here with Mr Daniel Couch, who's a surgical registrar at Northampton General Hospital. And today we're going to talk about post-operative wound complications. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Jennifer. OK, so, Daniel, first of all, how do you usually classify wound complications? Well, I guess there's two ways of classifying uh, things that can happen to wounds. We can talk about early and late, but rather than do that, we're going to talk about wound complications starting at the skin edge, at the skin surface, and working deeper into the abdominal cavity. We'll classify our wound complications from superficial to deep. Yeah. So first of all, talking about superficial wound complications, what kind of superficial complications might you come across as a surgical trainee? Well, I guess two of the most superficial complications that one can get postoperatively are firstly, superficial cellulitis of the wound, or the formation of pus just within the subcutaneous tissues below the skin edge. That's what we call a collection. So we can have a superficial skin infection or a superficial collection. Yeah, that's right. And how would you recognise both of those? Well, I guess the patients who are going to develop a superficial cellulitis or a collection will both complain of a bit of tenderness or pain in the wound. On examination, there may be some erythema around and some induration. What about if they've got a collection there? Well, the thing that will make you think there's a collection over just superficial cellulitis that in the collection, there will be some fluctuance to the area. Rather than in cellulitis, there may just be induration. Okay, so superficial uh, skin infection, it would look erythematous, warm to touch, probably a bit painful, and possibly indurated, so quite hard to touch. And if they've got a collection there, it, there tends to be added fluctuance as well. Yeah, that's right. Also bear in mind, some of these patients will have a fever as well. Okay, so they might be systemically unwell. That's right. If you examine the wounds and it feels fluctuant, could there be any non-infective causes of fluctuance? If you examine someone's wound and you find there's no cellulitis or inflammation around the wound, but there is still fluctuance, it could well be a seroma as opposed to a subcutaneous collection. What's a seroma? A seroma is a collection of fluid within the subcutaneous layer of the tissues and is typically found after operations where you've had to undermine the skin. And what kind of operations do you do that on? Typically in hernia repair there tends to be undermining of the skin, especially in an incisional hernia repair. I must point out though that seromas are non-infective and non-inflamed. It's just the presence of an exudative tissue within a potential space that creates that non-tender fluctuance underneath the skin. Whereas in a superficial collection, you'll tend to have induration, pain and tenderness. In a seroma, you have a normal looking wound that is slightly swollen and fluctuant. We talked about certain operations that are risk factors for seromas. Are there any particular risk factors for superficial skin infections or collections? Well, you can split the risk factors for these into three areas. Surgical technique, the type of the operation the patient's undergone, and the patient factors. What would be an example of each of these? Well, in terms of surgical technique, they're not operating within a sterile field. OK, and what kind of operative factors might account for skin infections? Well, as you can imagine, if you do an operation which ends up with some soiling of the peritoneum with bowel content, the chances of developing a wound infection are much higher, especially if that bowel content gets into contact with the skin edges. It makes the chance of you developing a superficial cellulitis or a collection very high indeed. Does suture material, for example, affect 
whether you're likely to get an infection or not. Well, there is argument to suggest that if you use a braided suture material to close the skin, the chance of developing a wound infection is slightly higher, and that's why the vast majority of us favour a non-braided monofilament suture to close the skin. And patient factors? Well, as you can imagine, if someone's diabetic, morbidly obese, smoking or critically ill or malnourished, the chance of them developing a wound infection are much higher. So we've talked about how you might recognise a superficial infection or collection, or even a seroma. Taking these in turn, how would you deal with each of these? If you think someone has got superficial cellulitis, there is an argument to pursue just a conservative course. Okay. Uh, just watching the wound closely to see if the cellulitis is getting worse or better, and if it's getting any worse, giving antibiotics, and if it's getting better by itself, you could almost abstain from giving therapy. However, I must point out that the vast majority of surgeons will just give antibiotics for superficial cellulitis. Okay. And what about if you think there's a collection under the wounds? It's not going to get better by itself. The pus is only going to go away if we drain it. Okay. Uh, so really we have to open up the wound again to let that pus out. So you don't have to necessarily make another incision, as you would if you drain an abscess. You can just open the wound itself and allow the pus to come out. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, you have to consider how the wound was closed. If it was closed with a suture, then you're going to have to get a stitch cutter and cut the stitch to allow the wound to open. If the wound's been stapled, you should get a staple remover and remove just a couple of staples, just enough to omit a finger to get the, the pus out. And should you swab this and send it for microbiological analysis? If you get pus from the wound, you should send that for culture. And do they need antibiotics afterwards? No, the wound should settle down by itself because the pus, which is the cause of the inflammation, which is due to bacteria, is now being drained. And so the body should be able to deal with that infection now. OK. And a serum is dealt with in the same way? No, seromas are dealt with in a completely different way, and the reason being is that, as I mentioned earlier, it's not an infective problem. The fluid within a seroma is not infected. There's no bugs within it. When you drain this, if you were to make a big hole, the chance of you introducing bugs to the area is very high. And therefore, for this reason, we tend to drain them with a needle under aseptic conditions. This can be done in the clinic. They should settle down afterwards, or...? Well, seromas, in my experience, tend to take two or three aspirations for them to settle down completely. So you might need to let the patient know that they might need to come back and have it redrained. Yeah, you're probably going to have to see them two or three times. OK. So we've talked about superficial wound complications, how you might recognise them and deal with them. Now we're going to move on and talk about deep wound complications. Well, three things spring to mind. Hematoma formation, deep wound dehiscence and enterocutaneous fistula. Okay, let's start with hematoma formation. Why might you get a hematoma forming in a, a patient post-operatively? So there are three reasons why a patient can get a hematoma after an operation. The first being poor surgical technique. So if a surgeon has failed to control the hemostasis after an operation and they close the tummy, either they will develop a hematoma within the abdomen or within the subcutaneous tissues. Also, if someone is on anticoagulants, such as warfarin or aspirin or clopidogrel, the chance of them developing a hematoma a few hours down the line are much higher than they would be otherwise. The last reason why someone can get a hematoma off during an operation is that if they're very unwell and having an emergency operation, they will be coagulopathic, and the chance of them developing a hematoma is much higher. OK, so what might alert you to the fact that someone's got a hematoma? If someone's got a swollen, tender, bruised wound, with a drop in blood pressure, maybe slightly tachycardic, you should also always think to yourself, this is a hematoma. 
If there are abdominal drains as well, you want to have a look at those to make sure there's no blood in them. And always be mindful of the fact that uh, any, any post-operative patient can have a hematoma. Okay, and do hematomas need draining? So if you're convinced that it's just su a superficial hematoma arising from the subcutaneous tissues, you can just leave it be and give them antibiotics and hope that it will resorb by itself over a few weeks, but it will take a long time to do so. Okay, and why do you need to give them antibiotics? Blood is a great culture medium, especially sure. old blood, and if we leave it there, it will get infected. Okay. In fact, that's the reason why a, no a number of surgeons would drain a hematoma rather than leave it. So option one is to give the patient antibiotics and monitor them, and the other? Well, the other is just to take it out to the theatre, open the wound and let it all out. And is there a risk that the hematoma might recur? If you take them back to the theatre, you want to have a good look to see if you can find the bleeding point, though quite often it's very difficult to find. So yes, the haematoma could reform. Moving on to talking about wound dehiscence, what is wound dehiscence? When we say wound dehiscence, we mean the deep fascia of the abdominal cavity coming apart. I have to say it's much less common these days than it was previously. Why is that? The suture materials that you have these days are very reliable and have a very high tensile strength. Whereas previously, sutures were made of catgut or silk, which were less reliable and would break a few days after an operation and allow a patient to herniate their abdominal contents onto the skin surface. Is that pretty easy to recognise if you saw it on the wards? A patient may complain of some abdominal pain and have a bit of swelling under the dressings and on taking the dressings off you'll see intra-abdominal contents, normally the omentum or the small bowel. And are there any particular risk factors other than suture material which you talked about which might cause wound dehiscence? Well, we've already talked about suture materials. We can also talk about operative factors and patient factors. When we close an abdominal wound, we like to observe Jenkins' rule, where you take a length of suture material four times longer than the length of the abdominal wound and take bites of the fascia which are one centimetre deep and one centimetre apart all the way along the wound. If you use this method, then the chance of wound dehiscence forming with a decent suture material, such as PDS or nylon, ethabond, the chance of you developing a dehiscence on the ward a few days later are very low. But also bear in mind that if a patient is very unwell, undergoing major surgery with a soiled wound, who's a diabetic, morbidly obese and smokes, the chance of a wound dehiscence are much higher. You need to be particularly wary about patients who are taking steroids for a long time before an operation, an antifolate such as methotrexate or currently or recently undergone chemotherapy. So we've said risk factors for wound dehiscence, there's surgical factors, factors relating to surgical technique, making sure that you observe Jenkins rule, you select the appropriate suture material and then there's operative factors. Wound dehiscence is more likely in soiled wounds if the SHO is doing the case. <laughs> Not always. Um, and patient factors, if the patient is immunosuppressed, such as if they're diabetic or they've had chemotherapy or they've been on steroids, or if they smoke or they're malnourished. Yeah, that's right. If you recognise wound dehiscence <laughs> on the ward, what should you do? You should always attempt primary closure, and so everything you do should be aimed at getting that patient back to the theatre within developing the smallest number of complications. And what we really worry about is intra-abdominal infection. Obviously, if the patient's intra-abdominal contents are exposed to the atmosphere for too long, the chance of them developing abscesses and infections is much higher. Sure. So the first thing to do is to give the patient some antibiotics, put a sterile, preferably damp dressing over the abdominal wound, Inform the surgical team 
you'll consult in theatres and eventually try and move that patient towards the operating theatre. Do they always need to go back to theatre? You should always try and close it first of all, yes. Sure. And is it more difficult to close the wound the second time round? And how does closing it differ to the second time, to closing it the first time? It's always much more difficult to close a wound the second time round because the abdominal wall tends to retract laterally and the intra-abdominal organs tend to become a bit more boggy and swollen and so you've got less abdominal wall to close around a more boggy collection of viscera. Okay. There are several techniques which you can use to get more length in the abdominal wall, such as component separation or placing deep tension sutures, which are used variably. But if you're really struggling, you can always give the patient a controlled laparostomy. But that's another podcast. So if you think a patient's got wound dehiscence, your management plan should be, first of all, controlling any source of sepsis, and second of all, getting them back to theatre. That's right. So lastly, we're just going to talk about enterocutaneous fistula, which is when you have an abnormal collection between the bowel and the abdominal wall. Why do you tend to get these, Daniel? These tend to occur in three types of patients, most commonly. Firstly, it's patients with inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, get enterocutaneous fistulas very commonly. The second group of patients who've had an iatrogenic injury to the bowel, such as the small intestine being sutured into the abdominal wall. And lastly, patients with a leaking intra-abdominal anastomosis. And how might you recognise an enterocutaneous fistula? Well, at first presentation, Postoperatively, it may look very similar to a superficial collection. There may be some wound swelling, some tenderness, and if you open the wound, you may get some prurient discharge out of it, and it's almost identical at first to an abscess. However, the giveaway is that after a few minutes, the collection drain starts to turn to small bowel contents, and you tend to get 800 mils to 2 litres out within the first 24 hours, whereas within a superficial collection, you'd only expect 20 or 30 mils of pus may look like a dra- the drainage of a superficial collection, but you have a higher output and starts to look like small bowel contents. That's right. Now, managing these patients is complex and can be very okay. long-winded. How do you manage <coughs> them in the first instance? They tend to become septic quite quickly, so control of sepsis with intravenous antibiotics. Appropriate fluid resuscitation, because if the enterocutaneous fistula is high, and by that I mean jejunal, for example, they may lose an awful lot of fluid. So they may become very dry and lose a lot of electrolytes, which will need to be replaced sooner rather than later. You need to work out whether this fistula is going to close by itself or not. You should perform the appropriate radiology, given the availability within your hospital, such as CT, MRI or barium follow-through. One of the questions you need to answer with these investigations is to answer, is there a distal obstruction causing this fistula? Because until that is fixed, it won't get better. But in addition just to just doing fluid resuscitation, these patients are going to need to be kept nil by mouth for the fistula to close spontaneously. You would need to establish central venous access and administer TPN, as they will be malnourished. Okay, so you need to treat the sepsis, you need to make sure the patient has adequate nutrition, and mm-hmm. that usually comes in the form of TPM. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've, we've worked out where the fistula is, we've stabilised the patient. Um, what would be the definitive management? If the fistula is secondary to an iatrogenic injury to the small bowel, which is fistulated into the abdominal wall because of a stitch, it is feasible to take them back early within the first couple of days for a primary repair. However, the mainstay of treatment for enterocutaneous fistula is the above measures that we've already talked about and taking a conservative course in the hope that it will resolve by itself. Okay, and do many resolve spontaneously? Only about 70%. And for the ones that don't? Well, they tend to require operative management, but I'm sad to say that the mortality rate from enterocutaneous fistula is about 30%. That's pretty high. 
It is, but it reflects that the, the majority of the patients developing them are very sick from the outset. Okay. I think just before we finish, we should mention stitch sinus. It's quite common to see a patient in a clinic a few months after an operation complaining of a small tender lump in one of the normally the superior or inferior aspects of their wound. And on close inspection, you may find a, a, some suture material poking through the skin. This is what we call a stitch sinus and can be, can be treated conservatively by removing it within the clinic. However, if it's deep, then it may require a small local excision under, under local anaesthetic. Is this when the suture hasn't absorbed fully? Well, it tends to be either because the suture hasn't absorbed fully or the surgeon has used a non-absorbable suture, which is now poking through the skin. It tends to be a problem in skinny people rather than the obese. Makes sense. Usually just excise it. Yep, you can just normally excise it and the problem will go away. Sounds pretty straightforward. Hmm. So just to summarise what we've talked about today, we've talked about superficial and deep wound complications, how you might recognise these on the wards, potential risk factors for developing these complications, and how you might deal with them. Thank you, Daniel. My pleasure. See you again.